I'm opening my Bible to Psalm 51. If you want to join me, if you have a hard copy or you can grab a phone and turn to your Bible app. It was Scott's birthday yesterday, so I had to mention a phone and Bible app. Where's Scott at? There he is. It was just for you, brother. So um, it's my mom's birthday today, so happy birthday, mom. She's probably watching online. I won't get everybody's birthday, but got two. Uh, my name is Pastor Dave. Today we're continuing our walk through the Psalms. This summer we're looking at the hymnal of Israel, the shared playlist of God's people, as they've sung throughout the centuries and the generations, looking to God in faith and hope, being formed by Him. And today we come to Psalm 51, to a penitential psalm that is teaching God's people to relate to God when they have sinned. How do we relate to God when we've sinned. I think of our, um, our house where we lived during seminary. We lived at the intersection of a, a, a P-shaped cul-de-sac, and we were right where the, the loop hit the stem. And every Thursday morning, there was a sanitation driver who would pull up in front of our house. And when that big blue truck came, our kids were always out there ready, delighted to see Mr. Patrick. Mr. Patrick was the one that Isaac uh, affectionately called Mr. Trashman. And so uh, Mr. Trashman was there, and he was always delighted to see our kids. He knew them by name. He could uh, remember them remarkably, along with all the other people in our neighborhood. And you think about what he was doing so joyously every week, coming and grabbing all of our nasty, stinky stuff that we had set out for him. But he just still shows up with joy and a smile on his face, a big genuine smile. And he'd show our kids all the buttons and the levers and they'd delight to see the claw grab the trash can and pick it up and dump it into the truck and put it back down. They'd get to honk the horn and he would just bless them and go on and, and bear all of our nasty trash and take it to the landfill for us. And he did this for our whole community. When you think about the incredible work that our sanitation workers do for us, taking all of our mess and making it safe and healthy to live where we live. But imagine for a moment, imagine if there was someone who was afraid, embarrassed of particularly stinky trash that they had on one occasion. And they didn't want to pull it down the driveway and leave it out for fear that the neighbors would know how smelly and disgusting things can get inside their house. And so they leave it inside their garage, but that smell starts to build up. You know how that can happen? And it's almost like it's stuck in the walls. You just can't get rid of this smell. And then imagine if they started even in a twisted way to delight in that smell, like Oscar the Grouch, you know, loving to be in the trash can. And then imagine even worse, if a whole community just began to delight in trash and they didn't even have any sanitation service, they just let it all fill up in their garages and the rats come and infest and the smell and disease that would spread. You can imagine this. But this is a picture that is something like what the Bible describes when we live in sin and our moral garbage piles up and it stinks to high heaven. And when it does, how do we relate to God? If you look at the very top of this psalm, your Bible will probably include the inscription. It's very ancient. And it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, 
when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is referring to the scene in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 when King David, remember he's the king, he's entrusted with God's people and leading them and shepherding them and caring for them, defending them, even giving them a picture of God's rule and character. But in this moment, he used his kingly power to take a woman who was not his wife and commit adultery with her. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he tries to cover his tracks by having her husband killed on the front lines. He's guilty of murder, but he tries to conceal it. And you can imagine the smell, the stink of that sin in him. And he's trying to conceal it, but he can't. God can smell it from light years away. And so he sent Nathan to come to him and he calls him out. I see you. You are the problem. You're the man. And when he, David heard this, he was completely broken and undone. He felt the weight of what he had done. Sin stinks. And the scriptures talk about this gross, filthy reality and doesn't let us pretend that our sin is anything else than a terrible, awful, and gross reality. Jesus himself speaks about the defiling nature of sin. You can imagine living in a house packed with sin. If you never took the trash out, you'd start to smell kind of gross. It's like it would defile you. But the thing about sin is it's not, it's not like living around gross trash bags is what defiles you in the Christian life. It's actually a defilement that comes from within. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's not eating Limburger cheese or pizza with anchovies, although that is actually gross. <laughs> but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's actually a trash that can come up from within us. And it stinks. And when it smells, what do we do? When we sin, how do we relate to God? Well, one thing that we can do is we can try to conceal it like David did. We try to live as though it's not there. But the reality of stench is that people will start to notice. You know, we can sort of lie and fib about it for a while, but eventually it'll be out in the open and you can't hide it. It's like the rotten potatoes that were down at the bottom of the basket in our pantry just this week. And Christina cleaned most of them out. And I'm like, there's a smell in here. We could not find it, but it was down underneath all these cans and these potatoes had worked down in there and they'd gotten juicy and really gross. You know, you've been there. We can try to conceal it, but we're gonna, we're gonna know. We're gonna see it. You can't hide it. And then once it's out in the open and we're caught, we can try to minimize it, and we become really good at this. We're evangelicals. We believe in the word of God. So we know Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and so we can just say, oh, I'm just a sinner. It's, we're all sinners, right? It's just sin, and, but I'm saved by grace, so it's all okay. And the danger in this is that we continue to go on and live in these patterns not seeing the danger that we're in, not seeing how filthy and disgusting this is, not seeing that this is what the Lord Jesus died to redeem us from. 
So what's the solution when you've got all this garbage piling up in your life? Where do we find the spiritual sanitation services that we need? This psalm points us, perhaps to a surprising place, it points us to the world of Leviticus. It points us to a world of washings and of sacrifices and of blood. This is the world where Psalm 51 first made sense among the people of God who sang it. Remember, this is a psalm to the choir master sung by the people of God. And he was teaching his people to take hold of the gracious means that had been given to them. Leviticus, believe it or not, we may struggle to see it as 21st century Westerners, but Leviticus is showing the gracious gifts that God had given to his people so that they could be safe in his holy presence. We, we, we said it together earlier. In him is light and there's no darkness at all. He is pure, spotless, untamable holiness and justice. How could we possibly be safe with him? Well, he provided means. He provided washings. You can read in Leviticus 15 and find the same verb for to wash. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 2 of Psalm 51. And you see the priests going through homes and washing out the filth and washing the people who have come into contact with things that made them unclean. And this made them safe to be in the presence of a holy, spotless, pure God. And it's in the midst of the Levitical world where we see the sacrifices offered, like in the Day of Atonement. This is the High Holy Day, one of the High Holy Days of Israel's liturgical calendar. We have Easter and Christmas, you know. But for Israel, the Day of Atonement was a day when they saw God's provision for their sin. Leviticus 16.30 says, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from the Lord from all your sins. You know, we've got those Christmas and Easter hymns, and some of them are worthy to be sung year-round. This is a Day of Atonement hymn. And we should sing it year-round because our moral trash piles up, and there's a danger for people like us who come to church. Some of you are taking a risk to be around church people. I'm thankful that you took that risk today. Some watching online are wondering whether to take that risk. I hope you would. But for us who come and we practice these rhythms of, of Christian life, there's a danger. And there's a danger for the people of Israel as well that it would become a mere ritual. That these sacrifices, these burnt offerings that they would offer, they would just do it. Because it's what you do. Because you're an Israelite. And because it makes other people think that you're righteous. Not taking hold of the true grace that the Lord was offering in, in those means and in those pictures. And so we have a gracious gift here in Psalm 51. We have a song that if we sing it from the heart is, in, is inviting us to take hold of what the Lord was giving to his people there in Leviticus. Teaching us to relate to the Lord when we've sinned. And how do we relate to him? We confess. We confess. We cry out to God for grace. That's how Psalm 51 forms us. We're going to pray and then we'll, we'll dig into it together. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Lord, your word is a two-edged sword. It pierces deeply to our hearts. And today we pray that you would pierce us. We lay open our chest to you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to drop our resistances to to your holiness, to your ways, that we would 
lay like a patient before your scalpel and let your word and spirit do the work we need to heal us and restore us and renew us. We just invite you now to do this work all for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we confess. That's how we relate to God. Uh, Four points briefly today that we're going to see in Psalm 51. First of all, we confess to God. (laughs) That's who we confess to. And we ask him for grace. Secondly, we confess confidently. Thirdly, we're going to confess and commit to change. Fourthly, we confess corporately. We confess together. And we'll talk about why that matters. But first of all, we confess crying out for grace. If you notice in Psalm 51, the most repeated word is God. Elohim, six times throughout the psalm. We're confessing to God. And what is more inconvenient for a sinner like me than recognizing in that moment when I'm delighting in trash that there is a God who made me and made all things and called them good and he has a good design for life and I am walking outside of that. The one who loved me even gave himself for me in Christ Jesus. I'm completely ignoring him and denying him in that moment. Ignoring the creator as a little creature. And he's not only a God, he's not a distant God, he's actually my Lord, as we find in verse 15. Oh Lord, he's our master. He commands our lives, not me. This is the way the psalm teaches us to sing and relate to God. And so, we don't avoid God. We go to him and we confess. We do our business with him, but that is a scary business. Because as we go to confess, we are going to one who is pure, spotless holiness, as we've mentioned already. John 3, verses 19 to 20 says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, speaking of Jesus, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Confession means we're coming out of the darkness. We're coming out of the trash with all the trash still sticking to us. We still stink. And we're coming into the light, letting all of it be exposed so that the Lord can deal with us and heal us, make us whole. That's the only place we can go if we want to be made whole. Look at verse 4. It says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Who else do we have to go to? Who else do we have to confess to? This is showing us that at bottom, at the root, when we sin, yes, we do sin against others. The Bible speaks about this a lot. It's not denying this here. But when we sin, we are fundamentally sinning against the one who made us, against God. It's him and his love that we're violating. But there's good news. I find a mentor and a help in Dane Ortland, a brother in Christ who wrote Gentle and Lowly. My brother-in-law, Ryan, whose family is here, he gave me this book last year, and it's been a blessing to me. But in this book, he shows a picture of a sinner having a conversation with Jesus on pages 63 and 64. It goes like this. No wait, we say to Jesus, 
you don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others see. But there's perversity down inside me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all, Jesus says. Well, the thing is, it's not just my past. It's my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. You're the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavier and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. I've sinned against you and you only. And the wonder of it is that he is willing to forgive. <laughs> Seeing our rebellion in his love, he will not cast us out. It's a wonder. And when we go to him and we cry out for grace, indeed, that's what we're crying out for. Have mercy on me, O God. You'll notice a footnote in your ESV that says, be gracious to me. Uh, quite literally, if you're reading this in Hebrew, it looks like, grace me, Lord. I need your grace. When we go to him for grace, he has a ready supply. And it's not just a, a like fire insurance. It's not a get out of jail free card we're asking for. We're not asking for less than forgiveness, but the wholeness of his grace, because we need it all. His grace of remitting our sins, of forgiveness, his grace of restoring us, and all that our sin breaks in us and in God's world, and in the grace of renewal, giving us new hearts that learn to love what is lovely and to stop delighting in trash. And so... Look at the prayers that David teaches us to pray as we sing Psalm 51. Have mercy on me. Be gracious to me, O God. Verse 2, we pray, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. We're stained with it. The trash, it stinks. Cleanse me from my sin. I don't think I have this in the, in the slides, but he goes on in verses 3 and following saying, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What leads us to confess to God? What, what makes us go there? It's because we sense there's something wrong. Something that I, I want to just encourage you and caution you about, dear ones, is if you lose that sense, those moral nerve endings that are telling you something's off when you've sinned, if you feel like, oh, I've sinned, but it's okay, you know, saved by grace, I want to caution you. That's a dangerous place to go. That's not where the scriptures mentor us to go, to take lightly the grace of God. The scriptures drive us to the Savior to call out for mercy again and again, to depend on him, and to know that we need his grace constantly. My sin is ever before me. It's against you, Lord, that I've sinned. And we find how deep the root of that sin goes in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In the, in the story of the scriptures, God created humankind good. But then in Genesis 3, we find that they were tempted and turned away from the Lord. They wanted something they, they thought would be more delightful, some sort of knowledge. 
that would make them more like God. And they broke the Lord's law. And when they sinned, their sin affected not only themselves, but it corrupted all of creation and even all who have descended from them. This is what historically Christians have called the doctrine of original sin. And our Lord Jesus came to deal with that, as we find in Romans 5, 12 and following. But David, when he mentions, I was brought forth in iniquity, he's not trying to give himself an excuse. Well, it's, it's Adam's fault. I was brought forth in iniquity. He's, he's showing how deep this problem goes, which drives him even further to know his need of grace. My whole being's corrupted. I need your grace from birth. And so he goes on and prays for forgiveness. Purge me with hyssop. Quite literally in the Hebrew, unsin me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. But not only praying for forgiveness, he does pray for forgiveness, but also praying for restoration. When we sin, we break what is good. We break relationship with God and with one another. We take God's good creation and we mar it, misuse it and twist it. So he prays in verse eight, let, the, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. We, we have broken bones. And in fact, we find that the Lord sovereignly allows our bones to break so we can feel pricked with our sin. But we long for all of these things to be restored. And ultimately, we pray that we wouldn't delight in trash anymore. Verses 10 to 12, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. This section of Psalm 51, as we sing it, is training us with something that's essential for us to grow in Christ in, in what we would call sanctification, to become more and more conformed to his image. We need a healthy fear of God. You see, when we think about confession, many of us are afraid that if we confess, people will know what's going on in us. And we could be embarrassed, we could be ashamed, but we don't realize in that moment that we are fearing the lesser thing. There's something much greater that we ought to be afraid of. Imagine losing relationship with God. Now, many of us will get into a Sunday school debate around Psalm 51 verse 11. And we'll debate Calvinism and Arminianism and whether or not a person can lose their salvation. And I'm one of those dirty Calvinists who says you can't. But that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is teaching you as you sing, it's inculcating in the people of God a fear of losing that which is most precious, relationship with God. What could be more fearsome than walking through this universe apart from the Creator? who made us, and even walking against him, knowing we will answer to him at the last day. There should be nothing that would unsettle us more. And so we pray with David, who was the king. Some will argue that he's the king, and this is only talking about his holy anointing as king. However, this is, however, this is a, a, a psalm that was sung by the people who were not the king. And they were taught to fear as they sang this lest they should lose that which is most precious, which is relationship with God. That fear trains us to hold God in reverence above all other things, to delight in him more than all else. 
And this is part of the process through which he creates in us a clean heart, a heart that delights in God above the trash that leads us to destruction. And the Lord is gracious to answer this prayer. But, but in all these things, as we're, as we're confessing to God, as we're crying out for grace, what we're doing is we're admitting that we have sinned. We're sinners. And many of us in our culture, we're, we're taught to say something like, but, but I'm okay and you're okay. I'm perfect just the way I am. You'll see a lot of memes and social media things being shared to this effect by uh, other than Christian friends. But even among Christians, there will be a feeling, if not stated, at least felt, that, well, honestly, I'm okay. I'm not that bad. And I'm certainly not as bad as those people. That's not where Psalm 51 would train us to go. Rather, we're learning by this Holy, Holy Spirit-inspired scripture to sing that we are a big dumpster fire mess. Like David, our inner life can be a steaming pile of diapers and we need the grace of God to make us new. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing as far as I know to say to people who do not know they have anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It's after you've realized that there's a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you've broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It's after all this, not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. And so I ask you today, Dear friends, do you feel the Lord speaking to you about your sin? Do you feel pricked in your heart that you are a sinner who needs the grace that the Lord came to provide? Because if you don't today, I just want to call you to look to Jesus. If those moral nerve endings are burnt off, you've been walking down that path of sin for a long time and you can't even feel the reality that you're walking in sin. You feel like you're okay. That is a fearsome place to be. Look to Jesus, the one who came to lay down his life for you, to make you safe with God, the final sacrifice for sins. Look to him, and I pray the Holy Spirit would awaken in you a need for him. Bring about true belief and true repentance, as we sang earlier. And for all of us Christians, I call you to avoid that danger, a comfort with sin. I'm okay. We have this smelly pile of trash around us. And it's like, we like it. We're Oscar the Grouch. We like our trash can. And we like Jesus because he gives us fire insurance. But Jesus came to redeem us from that trash can, to wash us white as snow. So I'm calling you to look to God. And when we do that, when we confess and cry out for grace, we can confess confidently. Look at the, the very next words in Psalm 51, verse 1, after, have mercy on me, O God, be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's because we know who God is, as he's revealed himself to us, that we can have confidence to approach him with boldness. He revealed himself to Moses as a God who's gracious and compassionate, a God who's slow to anger and who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
He is a forgiver of sin. He's one who will by no means clear the guilty. (laughs) We don't take his grace for granted. But he is abounding in grace for those who come to him. I think of Mr. Patrick, who took all of our filth away from our house. And and he took all of that for us. The way he smiled and joyfully would do so for us. The Lord joyously endured all of the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. Because he loves you. And he's full of grace, even more grace than Patrick. And and how he can do this, how this was accomplished, is described in some detail in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. It's worthy almost of a whole sermon series itself. We're just going to reflect briefly on these verses about how Jesus purchases this confidence for us to approach the Lord when we're sinners and we know it. But now, we read, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Imagine how scary the righteousness of God is to us as sinners. If we pause and actually think about it, Paul, who was writing this like David had been a murderer, he had committed murder, putting Christians forward to be stoned, even bringing false accusations when necessary to see that they were killed. But then he turned to Jesus and found mercy even for a murderer. And now the righteousness of God to him wasn't against him because now he has received Jesus, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, as we said earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and yet are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the purchase price for our sins. He paid all of it. All of our breaking of God's love over our knee, all of our trash that we delighted in, even as we go to church and we go through these rhythms and then we go for the next 167 hours and show where our heart is so often. Jesus died for all of this and his blood pays it all. It's all a gift. And we can be justified, declared righteous in spite of all of the trash. In verse 25, Jesus is the one God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. NIV renders this as a sacrifice of atonement. He's the one that all of those Levitical sacrifices were looking forward to. He was laid down in our place. And the idea of propitiation is that he's the satisfaction for all of God's righteous anger against sin. God's disgusted by that which is disgusting because he's actually sane and we're not. And he would rid his creation of this filth, but he won't rid it of us because he loves us. (laughs) He put forth Christ as a sacrifice and in his shadow we're safe. He takes all of that righteous anger and we receive only mercy and can be declared righteous. It's a wonder. And how could God be just and do all this? I've, I've had conversations with um, Muslim neighbors, and um, they, they would say that God can simply forgive sin. Why, why would Jesus need to die? Well, here's the reality. God is a just judge. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. 
He will by no means clear the guilty. And yet he longs to be merciful. And so this was to show God's righteousness in verse 25, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God was proving himself just as a judge by punishing sin finally and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. So he was truly just and merciful, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how we have confidence, folks. Jesus died for us. It's no trite thing. It's no Christianese. It is, it's our song for all of our life. Jesus died for me. And when we sing that, we don't just have, have fire insurance. We have something that moves us to change. We confess and commit to change. Number three, and looking down in verses 13 to 15, we see that this psalm would move God's people in the same way. But grace is something that's very misunderstood by Christians and by the world. Too often we can fall into a trap of thinking, if it's all of grace, if we're saved by grace, why can't I just do whatever I want? That was me when I was, I was 18 and I was in my first semester of college. And I, I learned about this salvation by grace alone. And I thought to myself, well, awesome. A good time to figure that out my first semester of college. So I'll do what I want. But God didn't let me do that for long. He weighed on me like a ton of bricks and brought me back to himself and to my senses. Because when you live that way, as though if I'm saved by grace, I can do whatever I want, you have missed the whole point of Christianity and you have missed Christ himself. If I could tell freshman year David the same, I would. I'd missed the point. Paul, that early Christian saved by grace, wrote these things. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We died a death with Christ. We were baptized into his death and we've been raised with him to newness of life. How could we still delight in this trash when we're raised with him, when we're under his grace? What's the, what happens in us truly is when we grasp the gospel, when we see the grace that's been given us, we're moved in our hearts with gratitude to follow God and to, to wonder. <laughs> we we sang a, uh, a song in the first service, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? How is it possible that the Lord would love me? And yet he does. Grace motivates our obedience. And in fact, even our obedience is grace. We give glory to Christ for every step of faithfulness because it doesn't come from us. So this psalm moves us to say, then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. It's in response to his grace that we're changed and we commit to follow him. This change, though, it's, it's often, uh, we struggle with it because we feel guilty that it's not an immediate light switch, many of us. Some of our sin doesn't immediately just go away. In my story, I came to Jesus when I was 17. And uh, when I came to Jesus and committed to follow him, 
there were parts of my life that switched off like a light switch. I was a jerk to kids in my class in high school. And God convicted me of that. And I immediately asked for forgiveness of those people. And God did a work there. And I'm thankful for it. But there was other parts of my life that are more like a dimmer than a light switch. And slowly, the Lord would work in me. And sometimes I would fall back. But slowly, he wouldn't give up on me as he did his work in me. In fact, sanctification is more like a recovering addict than it is like a light switch. We're, we're, we're people who have been addicted to trash and we're trying to learn to love God and to hate trash. And it takes time. And like a dog that returns to its vomit, we can go back to our sin sometimes. But the Lord is merciful. And that's our only hope. We run to him again and again. And when we teach transgressors the Lord's ways, we can say, I know. I've been there. We can show them our life and show the way grace has worked in us. And with realism, the realism of walking in the gospel and living a life of confession, being aware of our sin and turning again and again to the Savior, we can show them what this life is like. No, it wasn't a light switch and I was perfect. That just doesn't happen. Read Romans 7. It's just not the way it happens for the most part. But we can show people that Christ changes lives by his Holy Spirit as we go to him in our sin. Fourthly, we notice that we confess corporately. So not only is this a psalm sung corporately, but then we move from praying just for ourselves to praying for all of God's people, first for the invisible church and then for the visible. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Zion, a picture in, in the Psalms, particularly if you went to Psalm 48, just as one example, envisioned as beautiful and lofty in elevation, something that's fearsome to the sight of God's enemies. And of course, we know that if you look at Jerusalem, there's no great lofty mountain and we know that oftentimes Israel was trampled by her fierce neighbors. But the church, the invisible church, is terrible as an army with banners, as Lewis writes in the screw tape letters, to all of God's enemies. And Zion is this picture of God's people. And then he turns and has the people saying, build up the walls of Jerusalem. That very visual image of walls that truly crumbled, a people that truly would turn away from God, struggle in unrepentance, just like their King David who wrote this psalm for them. But it, was, it would only be then that the people turned to God and would confess with this psalm in their hearts that the Lord would delight in their right sacrifices and their burnt offerings and all of that stuff of Leviticus, the whole burnt offerings and the bulls offered on the Lord's altar and this is important to us because we are a people who long for revival. When I say we confess corporately, when we confess together, what we're doing is we're, we're engaging in an action that we pray would bring about revival. God moving in the midst of his people and pouring out to our neighbors. And many of us want revival. Evangelicals often talk about it like it's something that we should be really excited about. And I think we should. But revival begins with repentance, not with excitement. Revival begins with repentance. We can't use Christian rituals and God words to manipulate God. 
into doing something for us. Amos 5, God says to his people who had fallen into this trap of ritual and rote religion, and he says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. It's like he's saying, you know, all of your, you're coming to church, you're, you're walking up solemnly to the Lord's Supper when you're living a total different life outside of here. I don't want any of it. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I won't listen. All of our noisy contemporary music, all of our hymns, the Lord's had enough. He doesn't want empty worship. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He wants to take hold of our whole lives and let his grace change us and have his grace pour through us like justice rolling down, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He wants whole lives of repentance, not just our Sunday morning praise. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present what? Your Sunday mornings. No, to present your bodies, the whole you, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. He wants your whole life. And he's given us this psalm to give ourselves wholly to him, to sing from the heart. If we won't confess when we know we're in sin, perhaps it's because uh, we, we just think we're okay. We've been taught to think we're okay. We're offended by the notion that we're not okay, that we're sinners. And I would push on a person, if that's you today, I would, I would gently <laughs> push on you to say, I think you're blind. I don't think you're looking at reality. Look under the hood. Pay attention to your life. Perfect even okay when you compare it to the standard of God's perfect love and holiness. And many of these neighbors might uh, counter with something like, but I don't want to be a part of all those, those Christians who hypocritically just come together and confess and then think it's all okay. They don't want to be a part of a group of hypocrites. But here's, here's the, the reality. That's the whole point. Of course we're hypocrites and we're liars and we're slanderers, and we're cheats, and we're murderers, and we're adulterers. That's why we're here. <laughs> and Paul would tell us, yeah, that's, that's what you were, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you don't come as a sinner, you have no nothing to gain here. I have nothing to give you. But this is good news for sinners that we can come to the Lord and confess. If you come today and you are afraid to own your sin, not just that you're a sinner, but own a sin, particularly to someone else. It says in James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. 
The Lord has given us the opportunity of being in safe relationship with fellow sinners where we can own, not just that we're generally sinners, but that we have sinned. We can own that we cheated on our timesheet. We can own that we were incredibly ungracious to our children and yelled at them. We can own that we hit our wives. We can own not just that we're sinners, but that we sinned and we need help. And there's safe community among sinners who will look you in the eyes and tell you the grace of God that's available to you, but will also point you toward a path of reconciliation, forgiveness, and justice. If you leave it in the darkness, it'll fester and stink, and you'll think you can hide it, but you won't. So come and confess. You can join a small group. You can join a Sunday school class where you'd grow in community. You can just reach out to a friend who you trust. But I hope you can find, as, as your pastor, I hope you can find relationships where you can be really real about your sin. Hear what I'm saying? We're not supposed to go through this alone. This is a psalm to be sung together. Confess your sins that you might be healed. If you're afraid of that, you're afraid of the wrong thing. The Lord is much more fearsome if we live in unrepentance. And if we would hear a confession like that and we were not gracious in response, we'd be fools. Jesus says in Luke 18, a story, a parable that he told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, if we want revival, this is where it begins. It begins on our knees in repentance, beating our breasts, saying, Lord, have mercy to me. I'm a sinner, confessing to God, I need your grace. I need you to restore me and renew me. I delight in trash. And we find that he is the one, the original ancient trash man who came and bore all of the wrath of God for our sin. He bore it away for us to the cross and he was crushed under it like a trash compactor for us and he left it in the grave. And he calls us to a new life, a risen life with him, delighting in true goodness, delighting in God himself. It's when we repent that revival begins to happen in us. It's when we, when we turn to God that we open our lips and our broken bones begin to dance. So that's what I'm calling you to today, to confess, to cry out to God for grace. We're gonna take a first step in that together now by confessing our sin in our hearts. So uh, whatever the Lord Jesus would convict you of today, 
I just invite you to look to him, to find grace. He is a gracious and compassionate God. He sees it all. He sees every corner of your heart and your life. And you can confidently go to him now. So we're going to take a minute of quiet in our hearts and confess to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, every single bit. That's the good news of the gospel.